spook ghouls and witches this is lights out podcast presented by 511 media group you can find us on both itunes and spotify platforms at your convenience all right so today we are going to talk about reddit i know it sounds ridiculous have there have you heard of the uh subgroups called uh no sleep and uh, creepy pasta and all that stuff. Heard of creepy pasta, but on Reddit, I'm all over the place. I don't have a specific group I'm in. <laughs> okay, so uh, basically, what inspired me for this one was Jen and Julian. Um, they had a podcast for like six years, and around Halloween time, they would um, read different subreddit uh, stories for different horror stories around Halloween time. Um, and they were my favorite podcast. I would listen to them in the car, and I was really excited. Um, so all of October, they would do it. Obviously, it's not Halloween anymore, but the idea is still great, and I have a couple stories lined up, and I loved hearing Julian read the stories and Jenna kind of reacting to them and getting scared. Um, so I'm hoping that we uh, we have the same experiences here. Um, so the issue with their podcast was they didn't get um, permission from the users, and they kind of require you to talk to different users. Um, so I got three different users um, who have given me the permission to read their stories, um, so the first one we're going to talk about today is The Man in My Basement Takes One Step Closer Every Week. Oh, boy. Yeah, and this one's by uh, Polterkites on, Polter on Reddit. Kites. I yep. like that. Yeah, like Polterkites, but Polterkites. Yeah, that's clever. We love spooky kites. All right. So this is a nine-part series as of right now. So we're going to start with number one. All right. Number one, he will begin in the furthest corner of your basement. If you see him, do not overreact. He may decide to move on. Two, if the intruder decides to stay, he will take one step closer each week. Three, do not attempt to speak with him, hurt him, or get him third parties involved. Four, any violation of the rule three generally results in several quick steps forward, depending on severity of transgression. Barricading the doors is acceptable. This will slow him down, but the process will be very loud. Difficult to sleep. Number six, to others, the intruder will appear as a mannequin or a rubber dummy or a court hanger, etc. Do not let other guests near him. Seven, the intruder will not move so long as you have guests in the house, guests who actually want to be there. Once I had an old friend sleep on the couch for three months and the intruder did not move a step. Eight, you can leave the house, but never sleep anywhere else. Never make plans to move, even browsing for houses online, etc. The importance of this rule cannot be overstated. General notes. None of these rules are set in stone. The intruder seems to evolve and react depending on your actions. Personally, I, react, I recommend measuring the distance from him to the furthest corner of the house. Calculate how long it will take him to reach you. Set up your bedroom as far away as possible. Once established, do not move your bed. You must sleep there from now on. Please note that sometimes he will leave this station and wander up in the house. Do your best to ignore him. He will always return to the last place he left off. So, reading the typo-written laundry list of absurd rules left on my doorstep, I chuckled to myself. Obviously conjured up by some kid with too much free time. Had to give some props for creativity, though. I stepped back inside, folded the note, and tucked it away. Either way, it was preferable to getting toilet papered. I slumbered on the living room couch and resumed watching the game. I just moved into the neighborhood. Owning a house of my own had been a live school of mine since 18. Now, after 15 years of working, saving, and taking on a crippling debt... I finally had a house, a killer deal in a modest 1982 story with a basement and a backyard swimming pool. The main floor was an open design, kitchen, living room, and entrance hallway that led to upstairs. 
Upstairs was a short alcove with three doors, master bedroom, guest room, and washroom. This house was the only thing in my lonely life I felt proud. Something caught the corner of my eye. Across the living room, in front of the entrance hallway, the basement door was cracked open. A slit of patch dark. Okay. I turned back to the TV. Probably forgot to close it earlier. Shaking it off, I focused on the game. As much as I could. The cracked open door lurked in my peripheral all the while. It felt like I was being watched. Fuck. I pushed up from the couch, marched across the room, pulled the door shut, and marched back. Embarrassed, I slumped into the couch and swung my feet up on the coffee table. Maybe that note was getting to me. Maybe whoever wrote it was done messing with me yet. I almost jumped at the pounding on my front door. Muting the TV, I begrudgingly got up and hauled over. I opened the door and a smiling man greeted me. He was five foot tall, round and wearing bright green Hawaiian t-shirt with matching cargo shorts. Vaguely reminded me of Batman's penguin. Sir, he said, forced a smile plastered to his face. Hello, I replied. I'm so sorry to bother you, he said, looking down at my shoes, studying. Someone's been leaving notes on, my, on the doorsteps out here since you're new. He looked up, glanced back over his shoulder, then back to me. I just wanted to warn you. About what? The smile on his face turned grim. The notes, he said for pausing effect. There's a, he searched for words, there's a mentally unstable gentleman in the neighborhood. Okay. His father, he glanced back over his shoulder again. His father lived in the house across the street from you. An overgrown one-story box of a house. It almost looked abandoned. When his father passed, the son, he looked back to me, he started writing notes, handing them around the neighborhood. I set my hand on the pocket where I tucked away the note. The son, if you see him, he's harmless. And the notes? Well, of course they're nonsense. He chuckled. I pulled the note from my pocket. Yeah, I was wondering, I said carefully unfolding the paper. The man's eyes filled with a concern. Rule one, I read aloud. He will. Please, he stammered. I raised an eyebrow. I've I've read enough of those for a while, he said, rubbing his forehead with the back of his thumb. They're harmless, but also kind of... He looked around, searching words. Creepy? I said, his eyes lit up. Yes, creepy, that's a great word. Creepy, he marveled. Weirdly impressed. I felt like he knew something and he wasn't telling me. Not out of secrecy, but out of fear. Anyways, he continued, I just wanted to let you know. Don't worry about the notes. They're ridiculous, of course. Of course, I said. Well, I, uh, best, uh, for the third time, he searched for words. Leaving? I said. Yeah, he laughed and waggled a finger at me. I must say, you're really, you're good with words. He shook his head like I just pulled off a magic trick. <laughs> I try, I said skeptically, though he seemed sincere. Howie, by the way, he shot his hand out for a handshake. I stepped back a little. The pandemic was still in full swing. Oh, of course, he said, his face turning red. He shook his head again. Still not used to it. It's all good, I said. I'm Brandon, by the way. Brandon, he said, smiling again and turning away. I stood there in the doorway, watching him leave, dumbfounded by the strange conversation as he stepped out onto the road. I stopped back into my house and pulled the door shut. Strolling back into the living room, I slumped down on the couch. Fuck, my team was losing. When the game finished, it was dark out. 31 against me, of course. I turned off the TV and stretched up my arms and pushed off the couch. I froze. The basement door was open again. Wide open this time. A few seconds crept by until I finally stepped forward. I know I shut that door. I stood at the top of the stairs. Below me, everything faded into uninviting darkness. I flicked on the light and an orange glow started to life. Beige cream walls and scratchy carpet. The stairs went down about 20 steps, then took a hard turn to the left. I'd only been in the basement twice since I moved in, nothing but open moving boxes down there. I pulled the door shut and went up to my bedroom. Crawling into bed, I flicked off the light and shut my eyes.
maybe the door was broken. A bump in the night startled me awake. I checked the time, 2.58 a.m. Faint moonlight cast in through the bedroom window. Unopened moving boxes crowded my room like a cardboard metropolis. The night was silent. Still half asleep, I sat up on the edge of my bed, staring at the closet door. A door that reminded me of my childhood bedroom. One of the many bedrooms due to moving around so often. A sliding door with fake cherry wood, vinyl covering, and something downstairs moved. Seven quick thumbs curved across the hardwood floor, clicking almost like dog feet, only heavier. I cursed under my breath, fully awake now. The reasonable part of my mind wondered if a raccoon stuck inside. I pushed up from the bed and marched over to a stack of boxes in the corner. No way I was going down there without a weapon. Sliding a box off the top, precarious tower. I turned back and placed it on the bed, rifling through the box until my hand grasped a familiar cold metal. I pulled out a chrome-plated switchblade, the one I bought off my weed dealer back in high school. I flicked the knife in and out a couple times. This'll work. Knife in my back pocket, I stepped towards the doorway, wrapped my grip around the smooth brass doorknob, and pushed open the door. It was darker out here. No windows. I flicked on the light. Cold waiting room glow cast over everything. The basement door was still closed. Thank God. I crept silently down the stairs one step at a time. A faint smell, almost like burnt hair and gasoline. Almost. Moonlight cast through the window, the living room window. Everything down here was quiet and still. Too still. Like the world was one pause. I stepped into the kitchen. Empty. Shaking my head, I pulled open the fridge. Old houses make strange sounds. I poured myself a glass of milk and took a swig. The taste foul rot filled my mouth. I spewed and spat back into the cup. What the hell? I rinsed out my mouth with tap water and gurgled and spat until the bitter taste was gone. There's no way that milk expired already. I checked the date. Six days till expiry. Weird. I set it down and wandered over to the living room window. Across the street, the neighbor's house was dark. I should have asked Howie if Note Leaving Son still lived there. Based on what Howie said, it sounded like this kid needed professional help. Suddenly, a knight slept on. Exterior. On the left side of the house, motion detector. It cast over a cluttered, neglected backyard. The light went dark. Huh. I turned back to head upstairs, but stopped. My eyes caught on the basement door again. Still closed. But something stirred within me. Morbid curiosity, perhaps. I went over and pulled the basement door open. I flicked on the light and stepped forward. Scratchy carpet clawed at the soles of my sock. Covered feet. I rounded the corner. More darkness. A 15-foot hallway with doors on either side led to an open rec room. I flicked the light switch. Nothing. Of course. I stood there for a good 10 seconds, the strange pull of curiosity only getting stronger. I pulled out my phone, turned on the flashlight, and moved forward, stepping around boxes and clutter as I went. The strange smell from upstairs was even stronger down here, like gasoline and burnt hair. Maybe there was a leak? I'd get that checked out tomorrow. Regardless, I pushed forward and stepped into the garage-sized rec room, cold concrete against my feet. I scanned the phone light from left to right until I froze. Stood in the back right corner was a coat rack post. For a second, it almost looked like a person. It didn't belong to me. Somebody put it there. I felt sick, angry. Someone broke into my house and put a coat rack in my basement? I marched forward, yanked it off the ground, and stormed back upstairs. I knew exactly who did it, too. The same person who left the note. It must have been. This was disturbing enough in its own right. Of course, back then, the possibility of the note being a sincere warning never crossed my mind. The chance that something unknown and terrible was about to enter my life and never leave. At this point in time, I was convinced that a malicious trickster was attempting to break my sanity. I snapped the coke rack in half, tossed it in the garage, and sat up in the living room until morning. The next day, I installed the new security locks. In hindsight, dismissing the note was the biggest regret of my life. That was part one. Okay, well, 
I never go in my basement. I'm definitely never going again. It's a good thing that we're in the basement currently. <coughs> yeah. You I mean concrete floors, you know? We I've do have scratchy carpet too. Yep. We might die. I um, mean, our house was built in like 2002, but. Do you have a coat rack? <laughs> Not that I know of. Okay. Well. But it said it could be a hanger too. I have a lot of hangers. Just a hanger? I guess. That's that's kind of interesting because if it's supposed to resemble a person, would it just be a hanger laying on the floor? Maybe it's kind of like in the Babadook, you know, where it's like a like a hanger with a coat on it or something. Okay. Maybe. Either way. I don't know. I was kind of stumbling over that one. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't I don't want to know what happens in the next part. Um, I'm kind of scared. <laughs> I'm going to assume whatever it was was not happy it was cracked into two. Could you imagine if that was just like a spirit sitting there and it was just like, now you done it. Now yeah. you done messed up, brother. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Should we dare part two? I say we dare and scream. Let me get a little cozier. All right. You're cozy? I am as cozy as I'm going to get. <laughs> All right, this is Polterkites again, just a reminder. Um, so we're starting part two of The Man in the Basement Takes One Step Closer every week. I stood in the living room window waiting. Finally, the garbage truck pulled up to the curb. A heavy-set man in a bright orange vest, his vet stepped off the back, spat dryly onto the pavement, and hoisted my garbage into the back compactor. Climbing onto the truck, he unceremoniously tossed the aluminum bucket back onto the road. My relief vanished. Inside the bucket was left behind, foot-long splinter, a lingering remnant of the coat rack. Bursting through the front door, I yelled after the garbage truck, and it lurched to a grudging stop. I forced a smile, strode across the yard, bent over, reached into the can, grabbed the splinter of wood, and tossed it into the truck. The man on the vis vest blinked at his interest as they drove off towards the next house. The truck's compactor pressed down with a satisfying crunch. Goodbye, coat rack. There was a strange comfort in it, though as the coat rack itself held some special power over me a power of which, upon its destructed, had lifted. Drilling back towards the house, I caught myself smiling, almost feeling happy. I wrapped my hand around the front doorknob, and a sharp pain shot up my wrist. My hand swung back like an electric shock. Gritting my teeth, I turned my palm around. A splinter about the size of a blood test needle was lodged between my thumb and pointer finger. I breathed in, pinched the splinter, and yanked it out, and tossed it back over my soldier. I stepped inside. I pulled the door shut, and red smeared across the brass knob. I turned my hand over. A thin line of blood trailed out from the puncture hole, sneaking towards the tip of my thumb. I wrapped my other hand around the wound and marched back towards the kitchen. The bandages were in a tray on the top fridge. I pulled them down and wrapped my hand up. Turning around, I leaned my back against the fridge, marveling at how quick my good mood had soured. All it took was a wooden splinter. But another thought crept into my head. Part of me, the paranoid, irrational part, wanted to go back and find the splinter, take it out past city limits and burn it. I actually had to fight the urge to go back and do this. It's a coat rack, I reminded myself. Either way, I took comfort in a new security setup. Alarms on every door and window, big stickers advertising the system to any would-be intruders. I even checked every corner of the house just to be sure nobody was hiding inside. Despite everything, I still hadn't fully processed the fact that somebody took the time and effort to sneak into my house and set a coat rack in the basement corner. Not steal anything, not even move anything, just set a coat rack in the basement corner. The simple facts stuck in the back of my head like a stubborn popcorn shell stuck between my teeth. Hunched over my laptop at the kitchen table, I took a sip of bitter black coffee. Thanks to the pandemic, all work was homework now. That was fine by me. I preferred staying home, 
just about anything else anyways. Typing away, I was finally falling into that ever-elusive zen state of work, coding line after line until my phone buzzed against the plastic vinyl tabletop. Unknown number. I reached over and froze. Something told me not to answer it. Something told me to block the number. But I shook it off and answered regardless. Brandon Miller, said the voice on the other end. I couldn't tell if it was a question or a statement. Speaking. I'm calling about the note. The one on your doorstep. He sounded young. Early 20s, maybe. Okay, I said. Yeah, I was the one who left it there. I didn't respond. I didn't know how to respond. Look, I know it's weird. Trust me. I know better than most. The thing is here to make sure you understand what's going on. To make sure you take it seriously. Does that make sense? I didn't answer. He sighed, anxious. Look, I know you think I'm crazy. Shit, I might be. I just, I need to talk with you in person. I don't call this number again. I said plainly. I ended the call. I set the phone down, leaned back in my chair and crossed my arms. In hindsight, I regret my coldness here. But in my defense, I'd seen enough real life horror by then. I was pushing 40 and well acquainted to crushing mundanity of real life suffering. I had no desire to indulge in made up nonsense. Knock, knock, knock. My heart skipped a beat as the pounding on the front door continued. I slid back on my chair and stood up. Fist clenched, I munched over across the room and yanked open the door. There stood a young man, tall and dressed in a white shirt and black denim pants. Look, I'm really sorry to be this persistent, but immediately I recognized his voice from the phone call. But I had to admit, his appearance was surprising. Until now, I imagined a weasley-looking, basement-dwelling internet troll. But this guy almost looked like a low-key movie star. Young Marlon Brando vibes. Regardless, I didn't know what to say. He looked down, kicking his feet awkwardly at the ground. He looked up. I just need five minutes. I can explain everything and never come back. His eyes were filled with sincerity, years of suffering hidden beneath a desperate smile. I looked around, other neighbors were milling about, a few glanced over, concerned. I looked back to him. Fine, I said, my voice dripping with skepticism. He looked back over his shoulder and then back at me. We can't talk here. Let's go for a walk, if that's all right. Sure. I consider myself a pretty good judge of character, and he didn't seem dangerous. He seemed worried. If anything, my curiosity was driving now. Early evening, overcast gray fell over the suburbs. We walked down the street side by side, six feet apart, silent. Our shoes scraped against concrete. The smell of outdoor barbecue lingered in the air. He looked back over his shoulder. We were about four houses down from nine. First off, he said, looking for it again, I want to apologize. He slid his hands in his pocket as he walked. I don't really know the best way to approach something like this, and I'm sorry for being so cryptic. I grunted noncommittally. Second, I really don't expect you to believe me. He continued, Unless I saw something firsthand, I wouldn't believe me either. He looked up at the clouds and squinted as diffused sunlight cast against his face. The sky was spitting rain now, invisible drops you only felt. Sporadic, icy pinpricks against my skin. Maybe I'm crazy, I, I don't know. My father probably was. I mean, that's all we thought about when he finally... His eyes filled reg with regret. I'm getting on tangent. He said, running a hand through his jet black hair. Look... Take it seriously for the first couple weeks and see where it goes. If it's bullshit, it's bullshit. I still wasn't quite sure what to say. At this point, I believed that he believed, but that wasn't enough to change my entire worldview. All you can do is search for ways to slow him down. Invite over as many people as possible. Try to figure out if there's a way to stop him without breaking the established rules, he continued. I know there's a pandemic, but hell, invite a stranger over if you have to. Rent free. Who's living in your father's house? I asked with distinctness that surprised me. I don't know. You don't know? He shrugged again. I haven't been there since 
trailing off into silence, he grimaced, looking around if his words might be somewhere close. I grew up here, he said, changing topic again. My sister and I used to collect pine cones in the park. He pointed across the street. Park was a generous word for an empty lot with a couple trees and a bench. We'd sell them to the neighbors, he said, almost smiling. Pine cones, five cents apiece. He shook his head as a chill went down his spine. Look, you've just got to take the rule seriously, he said, shifting back to the previous topic. I still wasn't convinced. You don't know who's living in your dad's house, I persisted. Did you sell it? He stopped walking and turned to face me. Don't try to understand this, he said, rubbing his forehead with the back of his thumb. The more you try to make sense of it, the more you try to rationalize. It only gets worse. Sounds like a death cult mantra. Sure, I said. You have my number, right? I nodded. If anything happens, you have any more questions, call me. Anytime. Seriously, anytime. 4 a.m. if you have to. I don't care. Okay. It's Mitchell, by the way. He gave a little wave, turned away, and strolled off down the street, leaving me even more confused than before. Worse than that, I was beginning to consider the possibility that this might actually be real. A possibility made all the more disturbing due to the fact I'd nearly broken every single rule. His sincerity was unsettling. By the time I got back home, it was dark out. I stood at my front door, rifling for my keys when, Brandon? A familiar voice called out from behind. I turned back to see Howie standing on the curb. I almost didn't recognize him at first. He wore a blue tracksuit with a blue pencil tucked behind his ear and a blue headphones wrapped around his neck. This guy really likes blue. Howie, I said. Walker's kid spoke with you, huh? He rested his hands on his hips. I nodded. What did he say? I shrugged. Same stuff as the note. Howie shook his head as if to say I expected as much. Poor kid, he said. At least he'll stop bugging you now. Yeah. Just then, beside the house across the street, the outdoor motion light snapped on. Howie looked back to see what I was seeing. Through the cracks in the fence, a line silhouette stood against the boards. It was hard to tell from the distance, but it almost looked like somebody stood there watching us, peering through the fence cracks. But the yard was filled with junk, so it couldn't have been anything. Howie turned back to me. Anyways, he said, pulling up his headphones and turning away. Who's living there now? Howie froze, lowered his headphones, and turned back. Not sure, he said. They never sold it? Nope, not to my knowledge. So it's empty. I've seen someone, maybe a few someone's milling about inside. Ever seen them outside? Howie tilted his head, thinking. He clearly never paid much attention to it. I don't think so, he said. But I got a goldfish memory. He chuckled, shrugged, and reached to put his headphones back on, and... Oh! I've been stuck on this. He pulled a crumpled piece of paper out from his jumpsuit pocket and read... A thin piece of metal which glows brightly when a current passes through. He looked up at me, eyes filled with hope. Eight words across, first letter F, third letter O. The light across the street snapped off, and a light inside snapped on. Window blind shades cast from inside as someone moved across the living room. Brandon? Filament, I said. I still locked on the house across the street. Howie scribbled away. That's it. My God, that's it. He sounded like he just won a thousand bucks. He looked at me. You're brilliant. I looked back to Howie to help anyways said howie his enthusiasm suddenly gone see you around he pulled his headphones up and jogged away i stood there watching the house across the street the light inside was still on but no more movement i turned back to my door and stepped inside pulling the door shut behind me i strode into the living room and stood at the window the house across the street was dark again i pulled the curtain shuts and turned back to the kitchen the strange smell of gasoline and burnt hair lingered in the air still subtle but unmistakable I flicked on the kitchen light and sat down at the table and stared blankly at the wall. Harsh fluorescent grow vibrated against the white stucco. I should get warmer light bulbs. Another thought crawled into my head. I thought about 
that was slithering around in my subconscious for the past few minutes. Mitchell, the dead neighbor's son, did not put the coat rack in your basement. Of course, it's possible he did, but after talking with him, it seemed highly unlikely. This raised another even worse question. Who put the coat rack in the basement? Howie? Doubtful. Another neighbor? Possibly. The person or persons living across the... Click. The sound of a door popping open interrupted my thoughts. I looked back over my shoulder across the living room in front of the entrance hallway. The basement door was open. Just a crack. A thin line of darkness. Fuck it. I marched upstairs, grabbed my switchblade from the bedside table, and stormed back down. Each footstep heavier than the last. Knife clenched in my fist. I swung open the basement door and flicked on the light. I'm armed, I said, trying and failing to sound like a threat. If anyone's down there, make yourself known now. Silence, but nothing but the hum of a buzzing light bulb. I took a deep breath and exhaled. Okay, I whispered, taking a slow step forward. I used to mock people in horror movies for going down in the basement, but in that moment, it weirdly felt like my best option. It was either that or leave the house or try to sleep, knowing it's possible someone's hiding in the basement. Call the cops? Tell them I found a coat rack? Most cops don't even have the time to worry about stolen cars, let alone misplaced furniture. None of these choices were appealing. I reached the first stairwell and stopped at the corner. Somehow, the hallway seemed darker than before. I flicked the light switch. Warm glow cast over all. The light wasn't working the last time. I stepped forward, the familiar smell of burnt hair and gasoline getting stronger. The short walk down to the hallway felt like an eternity. Finally, I stepped into the rec room. Both corners were empty. I breathed relief and felt blood rush into my face. Once again, embarrassed at my own paranoia, I pocketed the switchblade and turned back when something caught my eye. In the far corner behind a stack of cardboard boxes, water. A thin layer of surface tension slowly spread across the shiny concrete. Fuck, they never said anything about leaks when I bought the place. I crossed the room and squat down. There was scattered clumps of wet dirt too. No obvious source for the leak. Strange. The circle of water slowly expanded outward. I stared into it and my crystal clear reflection stared back. I need a haircut. Drip. My face rippled as a single drop fell from above. Of course. I looked up. Drip. Nothing but pink insulation and two by four beams up there. Could be a faulty pipe, I thought. Might explain the weird smells too. Bang. A door slammed shut. Upstairs around the corner, the basement door slammed shut. I jumped to my feet and whipped out the switchblade. Before I could process what happened, everything went dark. Pitch. Fucking. Dark. The kind of dark that makes everything sound like it's right next to your ear. The kind of dark that makes your thought visible. I fumbled for my phone and dropped it onto the concrete. Fuck. I dropped it on my knees, flailing in the dark. Sliding my hands across a cold, smooth floor, desperately searching for the phone. Searching for the light. The smell of burnt hair growing stronger all the while. No phone. Only concrete and cardboard boxes. Fuck, fuck, fuck. Panic burst inside. Swelled in my chest like a balloon, threatening to burst in my right rib cage. I froze. I breathed in. I breathed out. I breathed in. I breathed out. The panic stopped growing. It didn't get worse and it didn't get better. It held in the state of pure survival mode. Clenching my eyes, I shut. <laughs> I rose standing. I didn't even know which direction to go anymore. I followed my gut and took a step forward. Up ahead, seven quick thumps staggered down the staircase and slammed against the corner wall. Silence. A sliding sound scraped against the drywall as if something rose to standing. A sickening chill went down my spine. My hand clenched tight around the switchblade. You have about three fucking seconds, I said once again, failing to sound like a threat. Three seconds went by. Five seconds. Ten. Only silence. The sound of my own panicked breath and silence. Fuck it. Knife pointing forward, I rushed ahead, screaming at my best attempt as a war guy as I fell and flew through the dark. 
My ankles caught against the first step and I sailed forward, slamming chin first into the corner of the stairwell, swiping and flailing the blade like a blind man-man all the while. The light snapped on. I squinted as my eyes adjusted to the sudden brightness, flat on my ass, backed into the corner of the stairwell. There was nobody there. I looked up the stairs, nothing. I looked down the hallway. I froze. Stood in the center of the rec room, shattered splinters held together with nails and wire. The coat rack. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am quite terrified if a coat rack suddenly (laughs) appears. I do have a coat rack, and I will be getting rid of it. It kind of makes me think of, um, did you see The Invisible Man at all? I did not. So there's a scene where she's in the the daughter's room that of the man that she's staying with and it looks like there's a man standing there and then she freaks out and there's nobody there but this is just this is making me think of invisible man there's an invisible man in your face okay. sir um so my question is it says in the rules that he can't leave he can't sleep over at someone else's house and he can't move so what happens if he does like does it follow hoping i have a feeling that yeah i have a feeling this man is gonna test the rules because he doesn't believe in it enough i feel like he just thinks he's like losing his shit i'm also wondering what howie is hiding from him like if he knows that all of this is real and he's just telling him it's not maybe if he believes it doesn't exist it won't happen I don't know. I feel like Howie doesn't really understand what's happening. Like, I think he has an idea, but I don't know if he fully knows what's happening. Because, so, there's there's one thing that's running in my head, right? Like, there's something wrong with the dad, right? Mm-hmm. And something that happened with him projected into the neighborhood. But also, is it happening to everyone? Or is it just him? Is everyone getting a coat rack? Or is yeah. it just him? Because, you know, he said that everyone's getting notes. But are they the same notes? Yeah, I mean, if, here's my thought on it, that maybe his dad messed with some native burial ground, and whatever spirit, or sounds like poltergeist, or demon, came out of it, was attached to the area, and is now going from house to house, messing with these people, and I'm wondering what happens if he does catch up to you, does he kill you? Because that might explain why everyone's being a little shady about this guy's death. But what happened to the last guy that lived in this house, you know? In his house? Yeah. I don't know. It doesn't really say, you know? It doesn't say... Did they get out? Did they die? Yeah. And it doesn't say how long the house has been empty for. It just says it was built in 82. In the 80s, yeah. I don't think it's specified. Yeah. I, I really don't <laughs> know what to think of it because, like, it sounds almost like a poltergeist, honestly, yeah. but it it's not. It's like a it's shapeshifter. Active. It's too active. Yeah. Demons. <sighs> but uh, that, the <laughs> author of that story, great author, I am terrified. I will be <laughs> sleeping with the lights on. This one gets even worse. Oh, great. We'll see how many of the uh, nine part we read tonight. But this next part, I think, is going to uh, either be the one we leave off on or the one that genuinely scares me. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Um, let's continue on. Let's adjust this a little bit. Okay. Thus far, I'd broken nearly every single so-called rule. 
one, he will be again in the farthest corner of your basement. If you see him, do not overreact. He may decide to move on. I'm guessing that snapping the intruder in half and throwing him into a trash compactor counts as an overreaction. Two, the intruder decides to stay. He'll take one step closer each week. Based on my math, I had about 264 days to go until he reached my bedroom. Probably sooner since he seemed to be moving faster now. Three, do not attempt to speak with him, hurt him, or get third parties involved. I threw him in a trash compactor. Four, any violation of Rule 3 generally results in several quick steps forward, depending on severity of transgression. That would explain why he's already in the center of the rec room. Barricading the doors is acceptable. This will slow him down, but the process will be very loud. Difficult to sleep. I might do this when the time comes. Earplugs and white noise to sleep over the sound. Six. To others, the intruder will appear as a mannequin or a rubber dummy or a coat hanger, etc. Do not let guests near him. I don't even want to think about this one right now. Seven. The intruder will not move forward so long as you have guests in the house. Guests who actually want to be there. Once I had an old friend sleep on the couch for three months and the intruder didn't move a step. I have no friends. Not anymore. You can never leave the house, or you can leave the house, but never sleep anywhere else. Never make plans to move, even browsing for houses online, etc. The importance of this rule cannot be understated. Okay. From here on out, I'd follow these rules until I thought of something better. Two sleepless nights crawled up until I finally built up the courage to go back downstairs. I needed my phone. Down the basement hallway in the center of the rec room stood the coat rack. Behind it, my phone lay face down against the concrete floor. I crept forward, averting my eyes all the while. Sliding into the rec room, I pushed my back up against the wall and glanced over at the coat rack. Immediate regret followed from the side I saw. Nails and wires staked around the mangled shards of wood. If the coat rack was a substitute, then what did the actual intruder look like? An image flashed in my mind. A gaunt man with a carnival smile, held together with nails and wire, I shook it off and leapt forward, snatching my phone. I scrambled away and hauled up the stairs. The hands of nothing crushed me from behind, reaching for my ankles, ever stretching arms desperate to pull me back into the dark. I slammed the door shut and pressed my back against it. Breathing heavy, I slid down to the floor. It's a coat rack, I told myself. But the words rang empty now, like parent telling frightened child there's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing hiding under the bed, when really, they both know there is. There's always something hiding under the bed. Maybe it's not the long-toothed monster you imagined as a child. Maybe it's a feeling, a hidden thing that you can't accept because you don't know what it is. So instead, you pretend it doesn't exist. A festering obligation that you keep pushing back and back and back, always lurking just out of sight, hiding in your peripherals. Sometimes you even catch a glimpse of it, only to look and find nothing. So you shrug it off, you turn back to your food, your booze, your knock-knock-knock. Pounding at the front door, I got up, slinked over, and pulled it open. <laughs> there, just as ex I expected, stood Howie. Brandon, he said, wearing an oversized smile and an oversized white tee and baggy sweatpants. Howie, I said, fighting back the pull of sleep deprivation. Sorry to bother you so early, it's just... He paused and looked over his shoulder and then back at me. There's been a few break-ins around the neighborhood last night, and you, were you hit? I shook my head. No. Fortunate, said Howie. Behind him in the driveway of the house across the street sat a red Kowalski motorcycle. The first and only time I'd seen a vehicle over there. Anyways, said Howie. See you around. He turned to leave. Howie. He stepped and turned back. Did you know them? I said, still watching the house across the street. Mr. Walker? A little, 
said Howie. You ran a restoration thing, fixed up our basement after a flood. A nice man, but quiet. I nodded. Howie smiled and turned back. Anyways, be safe out there, he said, humming to himself as he strolled off. I pulled the door shut and turned back inside. Reaching into my pocket, I took out my phone and dialed. The tone rang out a couple of times until, hello? Mitchell Walker and I met a diner at the edge of town, a 2010s diner designed to look like 1950s diner. Every roadside greasy spoon cliche in the book. Movie posters plastered the walls. The front of the grill of a turquoise Cadillac hung up above the front door. Red leather booths lined up against the windows. I sat there staring blankly outside. Across the highway set abandoned middle-class suburbs, foreclosed 12 years back. Traffic droned on like swarming flies. Mitchell sat across from me. He wore a leather jacket and a bell cap. His eyes were quiet and distant. You don't count as a third party? I asked. Mitchell eyed me, confused. The rules. No third parties, I said. He shook his head. No. Why? Already a believer. Studying him, I took a sip of bitter black coffee. He still seemed sincere, but trustworthy? I wasn't sure. Why does belief matter? I don't really know yet, said Mitchell, leaning back in his seat. He glanced around the diner, almost like he was expecting someone. He turned back to me, suddenly serious. You need to tell me what happened. Excuse me? You said on the phone something changed your mind. I raised an eyebrow. I hadn't told Mitchell about the first coat rack incident for several reasons. Mainly, I didn't want to set him off. For all his sincerity, this guy did not seem like the most stable of indiv individuals. Not that I blamed him, considering his life circumstances. Why are you helping me? I said, changing the topic. He looked out the window, his eyes flicking back and forth as traffic sped by. He turned back to me. I killed my dad, he said. I mean, not literally, but it's my fault he died. He waited over his next word carefully. The traffic outside slowly droning ever louder like a rising tide. Mitchell continued. The last few years of his life, nobody believed him. We all thought he was crazy. But he never talked about it straight up. He just left notes. Sometimes you'd go home after a visit and find one tucked away in your shoe. He cleared his throat. The notes were always about the person hiding in his house. How they were trying to literally terrify my dad to death. The front door chimed open. Mitchell tensed up and glanced back over his shoulder. A family of four shuffled inside. He relaxed and turned back to me. I just want to make sure that what happened to him doesn't happen to anybody else. He leaned back in his seat again, hands wrapped tight around a cup of untouched coffee. Fair enough. Look, if you broke the rules once, even twice, that's fine. But you need to tell me what happened. I nodded slowly, took a deep breath, and said, I snapped the coat rack in half, threw it in the trash compactor. Mitchell's eyes filled with shock, a shock he immediately repressed. Like a doctor trying to act cool in front of a patient with horrific test results. Okay he said, and it came back the next day? Yeah, held together by nails and wire. Mitchell nodded. How much farther ahead was it? The front door chimed open again, but he didn't look back. About ten steps from the corner. Mitchell nodded again, acting like it was all good when it clearly wasn't. Another question dawned on me. Why does it look like a coat rack? Mitchell shrugged. None of the rules are set in stone. Did you buy the place with your own money? Yes, well, sort of. Mortgage. Yeah, that shouldn't Mitch? A voice from beside cut into the conversation. An old man wearing a brown leather jacket and carrying a red bike helmet. Tall, wiry, and neat in a shave. Clint Eastwood vibes. Mitch, where have you been? He said his voice strained with sadness. Mitch looked away, acting like he wasn't even there. Mitch? He said again, his voice shaking now. I turned back. Mitch stared down at the coffee with his hands. His reflection rippled in the waves of highway traffic rumble. His eyes were wet.
Mitch, please, the man said, leaning forward slightly. I've been looking everywhere for I've the stranger trailed off in a silence and stepped back. He looked at me. His eyes were filled with years of suffering. He reached into his coat pocket, produced a card, and placed it face down on the table. He looked at, at Mitch one last time. I'm always here, kid. He smiled grimly, then turned away and wandered back towards the exit. Hands on the door, he stopped and looked toward us. He opened his mouth to say something, but he turned away, pushed outside, and stepped onto the gravel co- parking lot. He crossed the lot and climbed into the red Kowalski motorcycle. He looked back at me through the window. His eyes were different now, apathetic. Suddenly, his eyes lit up, darted back and forth for a couple seconds, then snapped back to vacant apathy. Almost like someone had crawled into his mind, taken a quick look around, and jumped back out. He pulled on his helmet and revved up the engine and sped off. Mitch? I said, still staring out the window. The realization of who that was finally dawning on me. It's not him, said Mitch. Not anymore. I turned back. Mitch, handshaking, took a sip from his coffee and set it down. You wanted to know what happens when it reaches you. He threw up his hands as to say, wish granted. I don't fully understand what he meant by that, but right now wasn't the time to push. Mitch looked on the verge of tears. Reaching across the table, he grabbed the card and handed it to me. I already knew what it said, but turned it over and read it anyway. Walker Restoration and Renovation. Owner, P.T. Walker. So now, was that his dad or was it not? Maybe a brother? No, that was his dad. That was his dad. So his dad's not dead. No. And they've just been telling everyone he is. I, I guess. I mean, if if something took hold of his dad and it's like his father died. Because you see when, when he said, uh, when he got back on his motorcycle, he was like, it looked like someone was looking around. It is like something consumed him. And his actual dad was trying to look around for a minute. Okay. So what I'm thinking is when whatever catches up, it takes over that person's body. And my jaw also dropped when it said, I killed my father. (laughs) I saw you react, but I didn't know what you were doing because I didn't want to lose my place. I was like, okay, wasn't ready for that. And he's like, not literally. And I was like, okay. You can't just say that. Like, I killed my father, but I didn't. No, like, he's not dead, but he's dead to me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So we have a couple options here. So we can either... Go to the next story, which is four parts so far. Or we can go to the last story. I spent a night in a serial killer's murder uh, basement. Hmm. I like the serial killer basement idea. Okay. Curious as to what goes beyond the scenes. <laughs> so um, I don't know if this is necessarily a true story or not. Um, what I do know is that people have speculated which serial killer this is. It's a very renowned serial killer. I went uh, digging on this uh, user's page and discovered who it was. So I think it'd be interesting if you took a guess. You'll probably guess it right off the bat. But without knowing anything, I'm going to guess, oh, um, Jeffrey Dahmer. No, but we'll read it anyway. Okay. All right. So this story... It's called, I spent a night in a serial killer's murder cellar. I will regret it for the rest of my life. This one is by R. M. Staniforth. And this one is um, on his page under No Sleep. All right. My name is Clyde, and a few decades ago, my town was plagued by the horrors of a now infamous serial killer, whose name I'm now too afraid to mention. 
From this point on, I'll refer to him only as X. X is still a well-known legend here in my hometown, as many of his murders occurred in or around my local community. Regretfully, I had a right of you spending the night at the property where he is believed to have murdered many of his victims. Chances are, most people will know who X is or have at least heard of his name. I'll give you a quick rundown. X was one of the most notorious serial killers in modern times. He admitted to killing at least 33 women across the country, but it's suspected that his actual body count is 80 or more. In my hometown alone, X admitted to 12 murders. Local police records that have since been released show that he may have committed as many as 17 local murders. After a long reign of murder and terror, X finally met his fate on the electric chair. Now back to me. I've started a YouTube channel and I'm trying to grow. Seeing as X was a pretty high-profile name, I thought that making a Halloween special vlog on a full night stay at X's murder cell would garner thousands of clicks and subscriptions. I will regret this decision for the rest of my life. Many locals around my hometown or surrounding cities have at least visited the property as teenagers. Despite efforts to keep the address under wraps, the location of the property is widely known. Although X's self actually lived elsewhere in the city, in a small apartment that is still inhabited, the local urban legend has it that his killings took place at the small shack of the cabin. The property is located just past the entrance of a beautiful forested canyon. My research shows that this cabin has since been demolished, but the cellar and its entrance are still standing. The cellar is where he apparently tortured and killed his victims. To avoid drawing any attention, I parked my Subaru about a mile away near a local trailhead. After making sure that nobody was watching, I took a turn off trail and into the woods, stepping off towards my true destination. It's truly beautiful in that canyon. I watched the sunset peeking through the orange and yellow fall leaves. It was quiet, too. I could barely hear the gentle whoosh of the passing cars on the nearby road. The only other audible sound was the rustling of the leaves in the cool autumn breeze. It's hard to understand how anybody could have any violent intentions while standing in this peaceful forest of solitude. After a 45-minute hike, I finally found it. There was the cellar, standing alone in the gentle wooded clearing. It was painted white, with a red pentagram spray tinted on the outside. The wooded door had a thick padlock on it, but there was a large hole in the middle as if someone had smashed through it. Next to it, you could see the foundation outlining the small shack of the cabin that once stood there. The sunset provided a perfect time to start filming. I pulled my camera out of my backpack, holding my arm outstretched. I pointed the camera back at myself. Welcome back to the channel and happy Halloween. Today we're doing something truly terrifying. We're standing now at the remains of X's murder cabin. I flipped the camera around to show the outside. Inside here, down these stairs, is where he tortured and murdered as many as 11 women. This is where I will be spending the night. Should we go inside? Honestly, I'm not even sure if this was truly X's cellar. There's a lot of conflicting information out there, but not a lot of substantial evidence. Chances are, the stories of Murder Cabin were nothing more than a local urban legend passed down by many teens looking for a thrill. The viewers didn't need to know that, though, and it made the event less scary for me. I took the camera with me through the hole and down the dreary stairs into the dark cellar. It was dark, so I clicked on the flashlight attached to my camera rig. I pointed the camera to various parts of the small cellar room, showing the cement walls covered in graffiti, the dirty floor, and old rusty pipes. While showing the room, I told the viewers about the stories and legends of X's infamous murders, making them as dramatic and horrible as I can. After turning on my larger lantern to flip up the room, I realized what I was standing on. Painted on the concrete floor was a large red pentagram. This was not a sloppy spray paint job, like what was on the outside of the cellar entrance. This was a perfectly proportioned pentagram. They really should have been my first clue to leave. It was night now and completely dark. Time to get the real show going. 
I set the camera on the tripod and focused at the view at the center of the pentagram. Out of my backpack, I retrieved the prop that would really draw views, an old Ouija board that I'd purchased on eBay. I honestly didn't believe that anything would happen. My plan was to simply make the plan legit and move my own as pretend as if the ghosts of X's victims were talking to me. I slow. Oh, sorry. So many stories. I showed the board to the camera and lit a few candles for a creepy vibe. Setting the board down in the middle of the pentagram, I made circles with the planchette while chanting Ouija, Ouija, Ouija. Google taught me that was how you start the game. Are there any spirits in here that would like to communicate? I asked loudly to nobody but the camera. I slowly moved the planchette until it rested over the yes. I gave a shocked look to the camera. What is your name? I asked the imaginary spirit. I slowly moved the planchette to the letters, intending to spell the name of one of X's victim. R O S. At this point, I felt a small tug on the planchette. I stopped moving towards E. Although I had stopped moving it, the planchette continued, continued to move in the arc by the edge of the board. I was no longer controlling the planchette, and I was moving on its own. Now, I was truly terrified. This was not what was supposed to happen. The planchette completed its arc and cut diagonally through the center of the board, where it curved back up. It sped up at this point, completing a figure eight and continuing into the next one. Terrified, I let go, but the planchette kept moving in figure eights. It was speeding up, going faster and faster. That was it. This was too much, and it was time to go. I got up and turned for the stairs when everything changed. Immediately, a different type of darkness fell, and it was suddenly so cold that I could see my breath. My eyes and ears were deceiving me. Everything around me was altered. All sounds ceased to exist. It felt like I had taken acid and slipped into a different dimension between earth and hell. That's when the shadows appeared around me. These were the shadow of the monstrous winged creatures. The shadows moved around the room, reaching at me. My hearing returned with a vengeance. I could hear how the horrific sounds and pain-taking screams and cries combined with the horrendous laughter of the shadow creatures. As I started for the stale, a foul shadow beast appeared in front of me, screaming at me as it grabbed at my chest. I stumbled backward and slipped down on the wooden planchet. I fell to the ground, smacking my head in the center of the cement ground. Everything went black. When I came to, I was walking through a house that I did not recognize. I was horrified to realize that I had no control over my movements. As I was reaching for the doorknob, I saw that my hands weren't my hands at all. It was as if I was living a vivid dream, getting the first-person view of someone else's life. We quietly entered the room that was behind the door, where a young, beautiful brunette girl was standing at a desk reading a textbook. It crossed my mind that I might be in X's mind or somehow in his memory. The floorboard squeaked underneath my left foot or whoever's left foot, and the girl stopped what she was doing. Just as she looked up, we swung down a hard metal pipe, knocking her out before she could scream. Everything went black again. Now we were in the cellar. I was still watching from the eyes of someone else with no control over our movements. The beautiful girl was awake now, her hands and feet bound tightly with thick black strings. She was crying, begging and pleading for us to let her go. In all my life, I have never seen someone look so scared. I saw X's hand rise, holding a kitchen knife. No! I tried to scream, but I couldn't. I tried to take control of my body, but I was powerless. I watched horrified as X plunged the knife into the girl. He ripped the knife out, splattering blood on our face. He continued to stab the girl, stabbing over and over and over. I could hear her ribs crunching under the force of the knife as blood splattered everywhere. No matter how hard I tried, I couldn't even close my eyes. I was forced to watch the entire heinous murder. Finally, just after she took her final gurgled breath, everything went black again. I woke up on the cellar floor as the sunlight was trickled back through the hole in the cellar door. My head pounded from the fall. 
I sat up recalling that awful dream. It was reliving, relieving to be in my own head again. I remembered the events with the shadow creatures, and I thought that possibly the ghost of X had shown me some of his kills through my dream. Disgruntled, I sat up and realized that my shoes weren't on. Also, I was wet. Everything was wet as if I'd been sleeping in a puddle. As I looked down, I realized I hadn't indeed been laying in a puddle, a puddle in blood. Horrified, I realized that I was covered in blood. My hands were coated in partially dried blood, and my clothes were covered in it. Panicked, I stood up and looked down at the bloody mess. On the ground was the girl from the dream. She was pale, cold, bloody, and dead. I gazed at the once beautiful and lively girl, now covered in blood and stab wounds. No! I screamed aloud. I dropped my knees and checked her pulse as if there was some chance she was still alive. Needless to say, there was no pulse. I hurried over on the camera, still on the tripod. The battery was dead. I fumbled through my backpack in a hurried panic. At the bottom, I found the extra battery and inserted it into the camera. Hopefully, I at least caught the true killer on camera. I played the, the video. What I saw wasn't X, nor was it a serial killer or shattered creature. The horrifying footage showed me dragging the helpless girl down the stairs of the cellar. It showed me as I used the shoelaces to bind the girl's hands and feet. I watched the video and showed myself, lifting the knife and stabbing the girl while she cried, screamed, and pleaded. My hands started to shake and my legs felt as though they would give out. Every portion of me wanted to collapse, but I had to get out of there. I grabbed my camera and backpack and ran to the exit. I stopped and looked back one more time at the girl. I'm so sorry, I told her through my tears. Then I turned and ran back to my car. After I got home, I removed my bloody clothes and stuffed them in the black garbage bag. Even my socks and underwear were soaked. I hurried to the shower and began vigorously scrubbing the blood off my body with hard brushes and even steel wool. The puddle of blood I had been laying in had soaked through every clothing and covered me completely, covering every part of my body in blood. After I finally felt comfortable and clean, I went and sat by my bedroom window to cl think clearly. I needed to try to remax as much as possible so I could process the events of my horrifying night. Although I didn't know if I would ever be able to cope with the fact that I had murdered a girl, even though I didn't have any control, I don't deserve to go to jail for this. So I knew I had to cover my tracks, as much as the thought of going back to that cellar terrified me. After nightfall, I drove back to the same trailhead, but parked at the back of my truck. <laughs> Sorry, I parked with the back of my car right beside the wood line. I'd covered the trunk space in plastic and 50-gallon garbage bags. My backpack now contained duct tape and two gallons of bleach. The plan was simple. Get in, bleach the body and knife, bag the body, and dispose of her in a random dumpster. No body, no DNA, no murder charge. I reluctantly but discreetly followed my same path to the cellar. The woods did not provide the same sense of serenity as it previously had. Now, instead of peace, I felt panic and dread that made me jump at every last sound. I looked around paranoid and suspicious of everything. Finally, I was almost to the property. As the entrance came into view, I wanted to throw up just thinking about what I was about to do. After looking around once again and make sure I was alone, I made a quick but quiet run to the entrance. Just as I was ready to make my entrance, I realized that the hole in the wooden door wasn't there anymore. In fact, the door wasn't even wood. It was solid metal. I clawed around looking for a way to open the door, but there was no handle or lock. In fact, the metal door was welded shut on all four sides. I took a step back to realize that the cellar looked completely different than it had yesterday. Last night it had been white. Today it was gray. Even the graffiti was different. Instead of the red panogram, there was colorful skateboarding panda painted there. I looked around initially thinking I was in the wrong place, but everything was exactly the same. I was standing in the same clearing by the same foundation outline. I was definitely in the same place. 
I walked around the backside of the cellar entrance where I received my second mortifying shock of the night. There was the Ouija board, my Ouija board that I used last night, leaning neatly against the exterior wall of the cellar as if the board knew I would come back. Beside the board sat a planchette. I picked up the board to realize that there was even still blood on it. The blood wasn't completely dried. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw light. Snapping my attention back to the moment, I could see someone walking my way with a flashlight in hand, yelling, Hey, this is private property. Get the hell out of here before I call the cops. The man yelled. I didn't need to be told twice. I took the Ouija board under my arm and ran as fast as I could back to the car, getting whipped in the face by branches in the dark. I'm home now and trying to think of as rationally as possible in my current emotional state. I've done my research, and that infamous cellar was actually welded shut years ago. So what the hell happened to me? I reviewed the footage, which clearly shows me murdering a girl. The footage even showed me correct outside surrounding woods. I've even compared it to existing pictures of the property. It's the same, but how was there a different door last night? The worst part is that the locals' news has now broken of a mystery girl who appears to have been abducted. I've seen pictures, and I know it's the girl that X had murdered, or apparently that I had murdered. Here in my bedroom sits all of my evidence. A bag of bloody clothes, a bloody Ouija board, and most importantly, a memory card containing the footage of me murdering the girl. Everything I need to know that it really happened, and everything a jury would need to give me a death sentence. I know that although it wasn't my physical self that committed the murder, I didn't do it. I had no control as if it was the evil spirit of X's self had possessed my body, and I was forced to view the crime for a first-person perspective. The police won't see it that way, of course. I'm stuck with two options. I can either destroy all the evidence and try to carry on with my life, or take all the evidence to the police and turn myself in, hoping the jewelry rules me insane. Part of me believes that I ought to be in a mental institution anyways. Clearly, if I'm not well and I'm terrified to go to sleep, what if X takes me again and I kill someone else? I'm going to take some time to make my decision, but I'm writing this account to tell the truth of what happened in the instance that I do end up being arrested. I understand that it's hard to believe. I hope my family and friends do believe me. Wow. <laughs> that was intense, to say the least. Yeah. Um, do you have any guesses of who the man is? No, not at all. <laughs> Ted Bundy. Okay. The only way I knew that it could be Ted Bundy is while he was in prison. Um, he admitted to, um, he gave specific locations of where the bodies were that he remembered but there were many that he didn't. Many that while he was traveling to kill, he would bury randomly. And there are so many bodies un- not found that many he associated with okay. um, him. So um, I hadn't read that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't want to go back to the grease factory now. No. <laughs> um, I've been to a haunted insane asylum before and i've said this before and i definitely will not be going back because that is quite terrifying i'm curious as to how the doors could have changed on them and if it was private property why didn't anyone notice him the first time yeah um i don't know i mean he has the evidence that it happened but i don't know of anything that like an actual spirit could possibly conjure up some kind of illusion and i mean how do you get past a welded door do you know how hard it is to get yeah. past a welded door i mean the only thing i could think of is different realities 
like somehow he traveled to a different dimension where he was actually the killer or he was possessed and he got inside this murder cellar. That's so crazy. I I don't know. I everything that I think of just leads back to how did he get past the door? Yeah. But how does he have the how wh- how did the Ouija board get outside? Like Yeah. Cuz he would have left it inside of the building. And the pentagram obviously shows signs of something evil yeah. and the shadows obviously were nothing good. Um so I mean, I guess it it could be a, another reality. Um, you know, that maybe they took him to a different yeah. dimension. But it doesn't explain how a real woman from his dimension died. Yeah. I mean, maybe the guy's just absolutely nuts. Can you imagine the whole thing? I wonder if they were to open the well to door, if they would find something inside. Yeah. Like, dead bodies. Like, maybe the, he's not the only person that's happened to. I could see that. Maybe they're... What could have happened is X, or Ted Bundy was possessing multiple people who would investigate his site to continue on killing people. Yeah, I wonder how the how the owner of the property or whoever was watching it didn't find him, though. Yeah. I don't know, that one was wild. Mm-hmm. <laughs> From yeah. start to finish, I was like, oh. So, good ending point. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. Um <sighs> a little overwhelmed from all that talking today um so i just wanted to again thank the uh the authors of the two stories that we read today uh, we would again just to go over recap what we read uh we read the man in the basement uh one through three um who was written by polterkite um and then we went a we read a spent a night in a serial killer's murder cellar and i'll regret it for the rest of my life by R.M. Staniforth, and you can find both of these stories on Reddit under the, I believe they both are under Creepypasta and No Sleep, um, but uh, hopefully I can link it up somewhere and we can find it out. We can post it on our Instagram. That works, and possibly Facebook when we set it up. Yes. Alrighty, uh, thank you guys for joining us. Um, until next, uh, ne- <laughs> until next time. Keep the lights out.